everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast, and um, so grateful for for the privilege of playing a part in whatever journey you are on. Uh, Vox is Latin for voice, and uh, the purpose of our podcast is to really give permission and make room for all sorts of questions, uh, things that we're wrestling with, issues, discussion, um, trying to find a, a way through the 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 binaries right now, the um, politicized extremes um, uh, about faith, about politics, about all those sorts of things. And also, we call that deconstruction. And uh, we also want to to play a part in um, separating the Christian subculture that's grown up around Jesus from the real thing so that uh, we can see and appreciate again the beauty and majesty of Jesus as much as we can. Obviously, we can't wipe away 2,000 years of church history, but um, as best we can, we try to, um, to to divorce the subculture, the Christian subculture that's embodied, at least in my stream of uh, my tribe of Christianity, apart from the Jesus as he's portrayed in the Gospels. And, um, and so we talk about all kinds of things. We're so grateful for feedback and questions. I mean, I think one of the things we're going to start is just a quick Q&A. So we won't do mailbag episodes anymore, but we'll just do like Q&A podcasts, like one a week of just one question. There'll be like three to four minutes. And uh, we'll start adding those to our stream. So I've got probably a hundred or so questions sitting in a folder uh, that are incredible uh, that I've been saving up for this. So so we'll launch that here in a couple of weeks. Uh, also, uh, I'm so very grateful for those of you that support us on Patreon and um, and those that like and review us. We had a review um, on iTunes last time from J5Ruff, uh, who pointed out some audio issues. And, and I should have, <coughs> excuse me, I should have known them. I, I should be going back and listening uh, to the podcast before I hit publish, but I had not done that, and so I had no idea. Um, so I'm very grateful that you let me know the audio was so horrible on that, and uh, we're working to fix it for sure. And then he re-edited his uh, his review. So thank you for that, J5 Ruff. We're grateful for your feedback. Uh, today what I want to do is I want to continue on looking at uh, the church and politics. How do we reconcile faith and politics? And, and what we've been doing, of course, is we've been looking at the Apostle Paul, um, not only kind of his political theology, although we haven't spent much uh, of our time on that, we've been primarily looking at the difference between Paul and, and his politics prior to meeting the risen Lord Jesus and, uh, and then after. And um, w- what are the expectations uh, that are adjusted? What are, the, what are the practices that are adjusted? How does Paul now understand uh, this kingship of Jesus announced in the kingdom of God? How, how does he understand that? And what relevance does it have in his advice to the churches as he counsels them on, because he goes around and he plants these kingdom communities all over Asia Minor. And we have letters, some of the letters he'd written um, to either introduce himself to these communities or to follow up with these communities or to answer questions from these communities. And so it's a fascinating take on on, on Paul, because we have a sense of what Paul was like before uh, he met this Jesus, and then to see what he's like after and how his politics have changed and how his practice of politics has changed, I think is, is very, very significant. 
Now, um, uh, one of the things we're doing for our Patreon supporters at a certain level and up, so we're doing um, uh, the book of Revelation, and we're, we're going fairly slowly through it. So I've been doing a lot of study on the apocalyptic parts of the Bible, and apocalyptic literature was very common uh, in the 200 years before and after Jesus. There, it, it has a certain kind of genre um, feel to it. There are certain rules that it abides by and so on. But uh, one of the things that an apocalypse does, the word apocalypsis um, means the revelation or the unveiling or the disclosing something that was previously hidden. And when you read the um, apocalypses of the Bible, so you've got some in Daniel, Ezekiel, you've got Jesus using apocalyptic language at the end of um, at the end of Matthew. Um, you've got then, of course, the big scary book of Revelation. The thing that is consistent about all of the use of this genre, so all of the use of apocalyptic language and literature in the Bible, they are, um, it's not about satisfying our end times curiosity, but instead, particularly, particularly the, the revelation of John at the end of the Bible, they are about how the crucified Jesus is a more adequate key to understanding what God is about in the real world of empires and armies and markets, then is the ruler of Rome with all of his uh, apparatus. So his military, his commercial, um, his priestly networks. I mean, uh, so, so, so what the apocalypses do in the Bible is that they present a picture of reality from an entirely different point of view. It's not, it's not a different reality. It's the same reality. But it's, it's the reality from, from God's perspective. So instead of Caesar sitting on the throne in the book of Revelation, you, you read about God sitting on the throne with this lamb who's been slain, a reference, of course, to Jesus. And so that, that Jesus, the announcement is that Jesus provides a truer account of what's really happening in the world uh, than, than what the Roman propaganda would have you to believe. Now, this, this is true of Paul's writing too, although Paul does not use the apocalyptic genre when he is writing to non-Jewish people. Um, but, it, it, but he does, he does make this point uh, in his writings that because Jesus is Lord, is the central affirmation of the early church, and that that is primarily a political claim, um, to say that, that the gospel of Jesus, the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of Israel and the birthing of the church, that story is the true story of human history, the realer story of human history, if you will. Uh, understanding that means that we don't give up our involvement in politics. Uh, it doesn't mean that we sacrifice our concern for institutional evil. It doesn't mean that we just sit passively now waiting for Jesus to come back. Um, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean that the ends justify the means. None of those things are true. And we see this so much in our politics today. Instead, the announcement that Jesus is Lord says, and this is, this is the huge, huge point, my brothers and sisters of this whole like sub series we've been doing of podcasts. It means that in Jesus, we get a picture of what kinds of community building what kinds of conflict management, what kinds of activism go with the grain of God's rule 
uh, of which we know, and Caesar does not, that Jesus is both the word, the inner logic of things, and he is the Lord. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father with all things under his feet. In other words, that, that and I, I'm, I'm probably using um, too much language to try to describe the very basic point, the announcement that Jesus was Lord as revealed in these apocalyptic pieces, that God is the one who sits on the throne, that Jesus' kingship is the true kingship of the world. I mean, all of these are incredibly political claims. That doesn't get us off the hook of political involvement, but it sets the boundaries for what cruciform, cross-shaped political involvement looks like. And that's where Paul gives us incredible portraits of the political nature of the early church. It means that there are certain kinds of politics that are acceptable in the kingdom, and certain kinds of politics that are antithetical to the kingdom, no matter if they are done in the name of the kingdom. So, so what, what we're going to look at today is um, we're going to look at two different lists. One list uh, is uh, several ways that the church's politics can be seen um, through Paul's instruction to these early churches. Uh, and then we're going to look at several ways um, that, that are, that have pra- the, several implications, I should say, pr- several practical implications about what this means for us. So, uh, I want to give you a list of, um, a number of ways in which, uh, the church's politics are put on display back then and should be, uh, put on display today. Uh, the first one is simply this. It's the announcement that Jesus is Lord. That is a political claim, <coughs> and so our worship. Uh, one of the things that was that that is so striking to me in the Book of Revelation is how the worship given to the one on the throne um, and to the Lamb is a parody of the worship that was given to Caesar. So, for instance, uh, or the the Roman gods, or the city of Rome, all of which were deified. Um, in, uh, in uh, Domitian's day, which is when Revelation, I think, was written. And the idea is that the parody doesn't mean that it's making fun of them. The parody means they're subverting. So they're taking language that was used to describe the worship of Caesar and his deification and applying it to this Galilean peasant who was crucified in a Roman cross and who some had said had been risen from the dead. I mean, it's absolutely crazy to think that uh, the, when, when Jesus walks around and he's announcing the kingship of God, that was a threat to Herod. Uh, but when Paul is marching around saying, no, Jesus is Lord, that is a threat to Caesar. That is a political claim. And so when, when in worship, in the church, early church's worship, uh, the declaration that Jesus was Lord was Caesar is Lord is incredibly subversive. And we have, we have hymns and, and um, creeds that were written very early on in the church's life that, that, that show us the subversive nature of the early church's worship. Um, so one of the ways that we put our politics on display is through worship. Now, I don't mean just the worship that is like Jesus is my boyfriend um, or, you know, just repeating mantras over and over and over again. I mean, that's, we have, there's a place for all of that. But when we worship and with our lips and our hearts, announce that there that there's a new sheriff in town that there's been a regime change that uh the rulers of the earth have nothing 
on this Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that, man, that is a political exercise. And what it should do to the Republicans and the Democrats and the independents in our communities is to reorient us so much so that, um, that we see what we have in common with, with other believers in Jesus as more significant and more important than what we have in common with people who don't believe in Jesus but are this, uh, that would agree with us politically. And so one of the ways the church demonstrates its, its p- politics is through its worship. The declaration that Jesus is Lord, the declaration that Jesus has been vindicated through resurrection, but it was the crucified Jesus that was vindicated. It's the announcement that Jesus' lordship consisted of his humiliation first, and that the people who would follow him and claim his lordship must look and live similarly. Absolutely, absolutely incredible and mind-blowing reframing of what worship is. Secondly, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, this was an incredibly subversive act. It is incredibly, it's an incredibly politically charged act because it, it, it is, uh, it embodies, it should be the embodiment of the kind of new social order that, that Jesus himself inaugurated and that the church is now filled with the spirit to continue. In other words, when the world eats its meals, like sits with like, the rich eat with the rich, the poor with the poor, people from this side of town eat with that side of town, and and people from the other side of town eat with people from the other side of town. It is reciprocal, it is mutual. Um, Social groupings are in the world's eyes determined by ethnicity or shared interest or income level or social class or what, you know, a thousand different ways. And when people eat, Right, at least in in banquets and informal settings, the most important people are given the most important seats. But when Paul teaches about the Lord's Supper in First Corinthians eleven, a very misunderstood passage, what gets Paul so cranked up isn't that sinners are eating communion or that non-believers are eating communion; it's that believers, the rich believers in the community, were eating communion in a way that shamed the poor members of the community. And because of this, Paul says, some of you have died. We'll do a whole podcast on this because I think this is a super, super important point, greatly misunderstood. But the point for Paul of communion, yes, of course, was the announcement that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus is coming back, that we remember his blood, we remember his body, of course, of course, of course. But it also was a, t- was a picture of the table fellowship that Jesus inaugurated them were to continue. It- it's the idea that the rich and the poor would eat together without distinction. It's the idea that the, the wealthy would bring more than they could afford uh, so that the poor could share in the bounty. A- and that the wealthy would not care about their social reputation and that, the fact it would take a hit in eating with the riffraff, the sinners or the poor. But rather... Um, Social capital would be measured differently in these kingdom communities. When people would gather in Jesus's name and depict their new political identity, it wasn't Caesar worship or the offering of incense or whatever it was in those days. Rather, it was the sharing the bread and the cup with people who were not like you. People that Paul designated the new humanity. People that were being re-imaged to reflect the way that the creator saw shalom working between people. I mean, this was a big, big deal. So worship is a political act. And we can talk more about this. If you want, if you want to spend more time on these things, I'd love to get into it. 
but I just am doing kind of overview stuff now. Um, second, the church's politics. Oh, so for, I don't even know if I just said first, but first of course was its worship. Um, it's singing, it's allegiance, it's praising, not of Caesar, but of God, uh, and his son, Jesus. And, um, the, the way communion was to be practiced was, was to renounce, um, the, the social orderings of that day, the reciprocity, the patron client relationships to, to renounce all of that in favor of something that was non-hierarchical, something that was fully egalitarian, something that, 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 um, would have been, would have been unknown in the ancient world. Um, it was not practiced in guilds. It was not practiced in Roman social culture. I mean, this was just not how the way, it was not the way the world worked. And yet here are these kingdom communities where a meal is being shared in the name of Jesus in ways that totally undercut the status quo. The third political practice of the church is its care for the poor. And this, this obviously Luke draws loads of attention to in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Luke keeps mentioning that because uh, of the resurrection, because of the apostles' preaching, there were no poor among them. That's why when people will say, hey, we, hey, the gospel is about saving souls and social justice is about making the world better, and they make an artificial distinction that the Bible doesn't make. In the scriptures, believing that Jesus is Lord simply means that we care for the marginalized among us, that we are bearers of shalom, that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. And so the church's politics, now this undercut the Roman welfare system, right? Rome boasted about its care for the poor and in, in, in something called bread and circuses and the bread distributions that would be done in the city. In fact, a couple hundred years later, we have records of a Roman emperor lamenting to one of his priests about how well the Christians do at taking care of the Roman poor, and it's making the Roman priests look bad, right? So, so for them, um, uh, for them, uh, feeding the poor was was something the state should be doing, but the Christians did it, and they did it way better. And that was a political statement. That was that was the embodiment of a new social order. And so in, in, in the book of Acts and then later in the book of Galatians, as Paul reflects on this, the two major arms of the church represented by Peter, um, who was the head of the Jerusalem church unofficially, uh, and Paul, who was an ambassador to the non-Jewish Christians, um, when they got together, the, the one thing they absolutely agreed on is to remember the poor, that this was a, an utterly distinctive element of the early church's witness and practiced. And so the polis of Jesus, the politics of Jesus, must have as one of its central concerns a care for marginalized and poor within its ranks and a heart for the surrounding communities. We don't just take care of our own. That overflows into the care of other people too. Now, this, of course, flows straight from Israel's vision um, that was given to them by God. The, the job description for Israel was to be a worshiping community, to embody a radical, radically new social order, to practice justice uh, and care for the poor and the marginalized. This was like this is all straight from Israel um, and God's intention for Israel. Now, uh, under the lordship of Jesus, repurposed and and redescribed for the church. So uh, the last thing that uh, the last way in which the church's politics are shown or were shown. 
um, is that, and this is the way we say it at Vox, that the church, its orientation to the world must be one of love and service, not one of judgment and anger. Um, in other words, to put it in Pauline language, um, that the, the internal life of, its, of the church, the way the church relates to each other, and then the external life of the church, the way the church relates to the world, must be cruciform. Again, that's a Michael Gorman word that means cross-shaped. It, it, it's the values of the cross. It's not, the cross was not coercive. The cross was not manipulative. The cross was not full of power. The cross was weakness. The cross was humiliation. The cross was choosing the way of, of humility uh, rather than the way of self-exaltation. And so, so for Paul, the way that it, the church is to relate in its politics was to be one of service um, and, uh, and one of love, one of uh, self-sacrificial behavior, one of self-giving love, one of cruciform servanthood. I mean, all of these ways are describing the ways in which the church should operate towards each other. Paul writes this beautifully in Philippians 2, right? If you're... If you, if, if you, uh, are, if you, if you have, you know, anything at all from Christ Jesus, if you, um, if you have, you know, um, incredible joy, if you have, you know, whatever, I'm obviously struggling to remember exactly what he says. Uh, he says, but then he says, uh, then I want you to have the same likeness, the same mind of Christ who being in very nature, God um, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and take, you know, I mean, it's this incredible, incredible picture of Jesus not claiming his rights, but rather surrendering his rights for the sake of others. And this, this is what the church's politics must look like. And if you've ever been a part of church politics, that is not what they look like, nor uh, internally, but certainly not externally too. I think for many people in our world, we, uh, the, the church is seen as just another power-hungry special interest group who wants to impose their will on the non-believing majority. And, um, and because of that, we're not trusted. We're not considered safe. Um, to be an evangelical is to fire up one base and to totally disenfranchise another. And, I, and this, I would argue, is totally against what Paul and what Jesus would see for how the kingdom communities then and now were to operate. The, the internal life and the external way the church related was to be cruciform. It was to be full of service. It was to rather than insist on my rights. I mean, Paul even takes this uh, and applies it to legally. He says, listen, some of you believers are suing each other. Wouldn't you rather be wronged than to simply, than to see the name of Jesus um, maligned in public, right? What, what, give up your lawsuit just because it makes, makes Jesus look bad. I mean, unbelievable concern for how it was that we were to relinquish our supposed rights and our insistence upon them and embrace instead this servant-hearted way of approaching each other in weakness and in gentleness. Um, and so, so the, the, the point that I want to make is that, that the practices of the church were political. It wasn't just its doctrine, although that was political too, but it was the way the, doc, the doctrine was embodied as it took its shape um, after the, the way Jesus lived, the way he died, the way he rose again, his ascension into the heavens, uh, but primarily from the way he was crucified, the, that he allowed himself 
to be put to death, forgiving his enemies rather than um, responding with violence towards them, that this was the shape of these early Christian communities. They were absolutely political in their social practices because they manifested in them the triumph of God and the reign and victory of the Lord Jesus. Right? They, they, in their care for one another, their use of property and money, um, their deference towards each other, the fact that they didn't care about social rank, this was one of the only places in the empire where these things were true, all of this said something to the world that was watching. Their political behaviors, um, both internally and externally, functioned as a public monument to the reign of Jesus. What, what, what God intended for Israel is that Israel would be a magnet drawing people out of the nations to the worship of the one true God because of how beautiful their life together was. It was beautiful to celebrate the feasts and recount the story. It was beautiful to see the poor taken care of. It was beautiful to see women have rights that were progressive for that day. It was beautiful. All of this was to be beautiful. Every 50 years, all debts were to be forgiven through this thing called Jubilee. This was to be magnetic and magnificent to the nations. And, and Paul and Jesus share the same vision for the church. That the church is not just this club where we consume religious goods and services and compete with other churches in town for, for the coolest or fastest growing or whatever title we want. Rather, these were to be functioning movements that declared the goodness and the difference that living under the reign of Jesus makes. So instead of accumulation, we value simplicity and generosity. Instead of boasting and platform, we love anonymity and obscurity. Instead of self-promotion, we promote others. Instead of greed, we promote a tight or excuse me, a very loose grip on money. I mean, you can just go down the list. Everything the world values, Jesus puts at the bottom of his list and values something else instead, right? That was what was so shocking about the Beatitudes, right? That we thought the blessed people were the rich people and the intelligent people and the good-looking people and the skinny people and the whatever else. And Jesus comes around announcing, no, it's the poor in spirit and it's the meek and it's the merciful and the peacemakers. I mean, the people that you'd never expect, those are the ones genuinely blessed. Now, we're to embody this. I mean, this was such a big deal, my brothers and sisters. See, when we think politics, we have such a shallow view. We've been so corrupted by this binary, us versus them, Republican versus Democrat way of thinking that we've missed any influence that we could have had to both parties by simply embodying in a new way entirely. Regardless of whether or not you think we should have higher taxes or lower taxes, let make it easier for immigrants to come in or harder, regardless of what you think about those things, the way we were to live our life together was to be so radically distinct from the way the world does that we would be magnets just as Israel was to be. So that's the reason. I mean, you, we, we have to understand you're, when you're sitting there, and you, you cannot believe there are Christians that are Republican and voted for Trump. Or you cannot believe there are Christians that, vote, that would vote for somebody who approves abortions. I mean, we, we, that is such a distraction from the point uh, of the church and the world. Which is not that we would all be uniform in our thinking. It's that we would embody an entirely new way of being human. 
And that that, that showing the lordship of, of Jesus, the grace of his lordship and the magnificence of his rulership, that that, man, that would draw people to us. That was the idea. So these were alternative communities formed around this, this unexpected Jesus who was crucified and then vindicated. So is Paul's gospel and, and Paul's understanding of church political? You bet it is. But not according to the corrupted status quo of what passes for politics now. Right? I mean, this is this is awful. I, I mean, this is toxic. This is nasty. I think I think we we should all agree to just boycott social media uh, until we decide to have a national conversation on kindness, right? I mean, in the church. Uh, God's people are being built together to be a temple, to partner with God in the reconstruction of the world. That's what we're fighting for. That's the vision we're interested in. Now, if that is the vision, what are some implications for us? And, you know, I mean, some of these are super obvious, but, you know, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go for them anyway. Now, the thing that is, is terrifying to me is what happened with Saul and, uh, and Israel about its um, expectations about Messiah. But Saul is emblematic of what had happened in some pockets of Israel. And, and Saul's zeal for God, his knowledge, his immense, I mean, you can see in his letters, his immense, not, immense knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. He's a brilliant, brilliant man, zealous for God, would do anything for God, and yet so completely missed the political vision God has for his people. And instead, he became angry. He says of himself, he was breathing out murderous threats. He says that he was persecuting the church of God in the name of zeal, um, uh, in the name of, of zealousness for uh, the God of Israel. I mean, it, you know, it, it is possible for somebody who loves God, who knows the scripture, to be hijacked by political concerns, not in the political concern like like arena we've been talking in, but rather the, polit the politics of today, the shallow, superficial, us versus them, Republican, Democrat politics. That can be so distracting for followers of Jesus. And it's all too easy to, to exercise the same anger, the same disdain, the same hatred, the, I mean, the same coercion and manipulation um, that the world embodies in the political arenas. It's, it's just Jesus people just do it too. I mean, it's just that simple. Um, our Second Amendment right, our... Um, you know, our policies on immigration, I mean, all of those sorts of things. And, and, and our politicians just play on these fears and divisions. And Jesus people, a lot of us just go right along with it. And so instead of becoming people who are more loving, more kind, more gracious, more generous, you know, embodying the fruit of the spirit who supposedly dwells in us, we're just becoming more divided, more angry, more sanctimonious, more self-righteous. And my brothers and sisters, that should not be. And I'm as guilty as anybody. So the first implication is, listen, I've seen on the right and the left politics as they're construed in modern America hijacked the faith. Absolutely. I'm saying the faith is political. You can't help but be political. Um, but it's political in an entirely different way. And that doesn't mean we don't have opinions, of course, on immigration and abortion and guns and those sorts of things, of course. But the way we work those things out needs to be so radically different. And so the, the first challenge for us is to ab abandon the politics of division, 
the politics of polarity, to recognize that Donald Trump bears the image of the one true God, uh, that a Barack Obama uh, bears the image of the one true God, that Hillary Clinton bears the image of the one true God. They're worthy of respect and dignity and honor, not in virtue of us agreeing with them, but simply in virtue of their being image bearers. And it is time for evangelicals to cease becoming uh, this angry special interest group that just quotes the party lines, but rather is willing to extend grace to all, compassion to all, um, who are willing to tell the truth about things, absolutely, and of course, but rather do it in a way that leads with weakness and humility, uh, that, that we're known for our good works and our service. We're known um, as people who love um, abortion providers and people that hate abortion providers and people who love Muslims and people who hate Muslims, people who love gay people and people who hate gay people. I mean, the, the church has to be the place where, uh, where, where those sorts of opposite ends can, can, as they're embodied in people can be together and share a meal. I mean, this is what the church is for. This is what we're fighting for, but it requires the people of Jesus to forsake their political identity and opinions as their primary mode of operation or identity in the world today. That means we give up our fear. That means we give up our anger. It means we give up our demonization of the other. Absolutely. So, and, and I've got tons of work to do on that. I have my own political opinions and I think there's a lot of nonsense happening that I want to speak out against. And Jesus keeps reminding me about all the nonsense going on in me. And, uh, and the world doesn't need just another shrieking voice on a lot of these issues. So uh, the first implication, of course, is that, that, well, the politics of Paul, as they're embodied through participation in the local kingdom communities, man, that is, that's a load of work and a load of implication for us. Secondly, um, when we think about politics, we always think a national level. But we should actually uh, begin with our local communities. In other words, the polis with which we are primarily concerned uh, is the polis that the kingdom community, the kingdom polis that we find ourselves worshiping in, the, the city that we find ourselves worshiping among, uh, and then the nation. In other words, so often we allow our national concerns to override the much more mundane and yet concrete concerns that are surrounding us all the time. Yes, I can be angry at the police for, um, for their treatment of minorities, um, but, but that virtue signaling doesn't mean that I've actually grown to treat minorities well. Um, I can be totally angry at the, the sexism in our culture, but that doesn't mean I've worked on whatever uh, sexism is in my heart. Right. And so so Jesus is so incredibly clear that the sin of others is to be considered, um, a, you know, a speck of dust. And our sin is to be considered um, something far more ugly. Right. A, a, a two by four, a plank in our eye. And if that's true, then, of course, we have all of these concerns. And of course, we want to address evil and injustice wherever we find it. But we do it as people who are coming from an entirely different place. So, um, I don't know if this makes sense. There's so much more to say, man. I feel completely, um, uh, <laughs> I feel completely under, uh, or unable to kind of communicate, I think, um, what a complete vision of this would look like. You know, I just, I, I just get glimpses of it and it fires me up, but then I just see how far, how much 
my heart needs to go uh, to be that you know kind of person who would embody this stuff. So for me, when I think politics, I always think um, national. For Paul, the polis that most concerned Paul was the local church. It was the kingdom community you were a part of. Thirdly, and we've made this point, and I don't know how to make it differently, but our loyalty to Jesus and those who are his followers trumps, and I use that word purposefully, far outstrips any other earthly affiliation or national party political identification. If your politics cause you to hate Christians who believe differently, then you are deeply in sin. End of story. Doesn't matter how great a moral vision you have or you're fighting for the unborn, you are simply part of the problem. Does not matter. If your national politics lead you to not make room for Jesus followers who believe differently, then, then I don't know what Jesus you're following because the Jesus of the Bible, the, the churches of Paul, make, make no room um, for, for that sort of practice other than just call, by calling it idolatry. End of story. And I have to watch this in my own heart. Of course. Oh my goodness. I've read some things and seen some things and I just, I want to call people names. And that reveals, that reveals in me uh, a massive lack of discipleship and transformation, right? Um, uh, 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 I, I, it reveals the fact that I've been discipled well by our culture, but not as well by Jesus and his scriptures. And so, I mean, for me, I mean, this, this is the most important thing we can begin to practice, right? That doesn't mean, of course, I have to engage in every political debate. And it doesn't mean that I, I, I spend time, you know, trying to convince my um, Trump voting, you know, friend that they were wrong or right or whatever. It just means um, that that's not the primary filter that we use to, to, to see the world through. And that, that means, fourthly, <laughs> we have to be discipled by something other than talk radio, by something other than political pundits. Our newspapers need to be, our newspapers, I don't know where that came from, our imaginations need to be totally refurbished. And, and so, you know, it, it's, the, it's the setting down of Fox or MSNBC or CNN or, or it's, the, it's the getting off of social media for a season, taking a Sabbath and just saying, you know, until um, the, the midterm elections are done and whatever's going to happen with the Supreme Court, Court justice, I'm just, I'm out of it. I'm just not, because, it, because of what it does to us. We want to be discipled by the worldview of Jesus and the way that Jesus saw the world. If we believe he gives the truest picture of it. But practically, far too many of us are absorbed. Me, I'm, I'm absorbed in Twitter. Um, I, I am always looking on Twitter for stuff to podcast about. And, and I follow all kinds of people, people that I agree with, people that I would disagree with, almost everything they say, people who sometimes I agree with. And I mean... It, it, and so it's easy for me to get caught up into these Twitter things and lose sight uh, of what it is I'm actually to be about. And so um, what the, the, the question that really needs to be asked, my brothers and sisters, literally you right in your car or on your treadmill or wherever you are, what's discipling you? Is it, is it news media? Is it social media? What's discipling you? What, is, what gives you the imagination, the filter, the lens through which you look to see the world? And then, um, and, and, and for some of us, the, the fasting from those things is the most important thing. 
Uh, and then lastly, man, this is rambly, almost 40 minutes. Um, lastly, of course, we should be politically active. But how we're politically active is what is at stake. And what's at stake in how we're politically active is our witness to the world. I mean, end of story. How do we handle people in, inside the kingdom polis that, through, with which we disagree or who we disagree with? And how do we handle disagreements um, out in the world? Uh, are we adding to the noise? Are we, uh, are we attempting to bring peace? Are we making room for diverse opinions? Um, obviously, we're to be politically engaged. You, you can't help it if you go uh, and worship you are politically engaged. If you, if, you, if you would agree and confess that Jesus is Lord, you are politically engaged. Um, if you take communion, you are politically engaged. Absolutely. Uh, but how we're politically engaged matters. And that can be a whole separate podcast. But, but the, short of, the short of it is this. We are to abandon ends justify the means thinking. Because the means... The means matter just as much as the ends. We are to be people of love, first and foremost. People of service, people of humility, people uh, who are slow to speak, um, quick to listen, and slow to anger. Um, and I'm, you know, 0 for 3. And so I, I, I am speaking in all this, not as one who's got it together even remotely, but I'm just hungry for something different. I'm just hungry for something else. And so um, how do we become bearers of shalom? How do we become ministers of reconciliation? How do we become peacemakers? I mean, that to me, that, those are very interesting political questions because uh, I may agree with the Democrats on immigration, which I do. I may agree with uh, the Republicans on taxes, um, which I kind of do, if I understand it correctly. Um, I may, you know, disagree with both parties on whatever else, right? I mean, we're the, the, the kingdom people that Jesus is calling together are, are people who are coming from a position of strength and security, not fear and scarcity, right? We come from a kingdom that cannot be shaken, right? Supposedly. Um, and, and last I checked, the work of Jesus isn't helped or hindered by who sits in the Supreme Court. Or what laws are passed? Now we're all again, we're we're all for fighting unjust laws, no question about it. But if we're fighting against unjust laws in ways that cause us to sin, then it doesn't matter whether the laws are just or not. We have now become part of the pollution, and are in desperate need of repentance ourselves. So, my brothers and sisters, blah, <laughs> take that. Uh, I hope some of this has made sense and been helpful. Would love questions, comments, and feedback on this. Because I, I feel like, as I was putting this together, I feel like, you know, from, from guys like Gombas, I always want to make sure you know, like a lot of this stuff was, was sourced elsewhere uh, and then filtered through me. But um, as I was pulling this stuff together, I, I just thought, oh, this is a good beginning, but there's so much more to say. So if you've got, you know, specific things you want to talk about or questions or whatever, I'd love to... Uh, respond to those or, or have the community respond to those as well. But for now, um, I, I hope and pray that, um, that this has been helpful in the journey. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give us peace in these days. 
Thank you, my brothers and sisters. Until next time.